Hebrews chapter 9. So it's going to be kind of a different study tonight, Uh, just a little bit different. You know, Pastor Mark and I, we have been endeavoring through the book of Hebrews. And uh, the book of Hebrews, as we've said before, uh, while you're turning to Hebrews chapter 9, as we said before, the book of Hebrews wasn't necessarily written as an epistle, uh, like the gospel of, I don't know, uh, first, I mean, like 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or uh, First and Second Corinthians, Romans. Those are all written as letters. Hebrews is more written like a sermon given by a pastor. Um, I personally, uh, this, is, this is widespread. This is across the board. I personally believe the author was Barnabas. Um, particularly because in Hebrews, it is, it often talks about the priesthood of Christ, how, uh, Christ is a high priest and it goes into great detail, especially in Hebrews chapter nine of the priesthood and what that meant in Barnabas in particular, who was a, one of the disciples and, uh, he was, uh, he, he traveled with Paul and he was one of the main pastors of the Hebrew church. Um, he used to be a priest. He was part of the Levitical order. So um, that, that's just my two cents. I could be totally wrong. I don't claim that to be biblical truth. There's, there's some stuff we can disagree on, right? Amen? There's some stuff we're allowed to disagree on. Okay? There's some stuff we're allowed to have different opinions on. I personally believe it is a sermon given by Pastor Barnabas. You guys can, uh, you know, some people say Paul, some people say John. doesn't really matter. Um, what matters is it talks about Jesus, right? Um, and so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, and it is going to be a little different because uh, we're going to read the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 9, and you're going to discover that there's a lot of stuff that requires context, especially in this chapter. There's a lot of stuff that requires context. So instead of what's going to happen usually, and uh, this is Calvary Chapel. This is how we do things at church. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right? We, that's, that's how we do things here in order to not skip anything, in order that we would preach the whole and entirety of the gospel, right? Um, but in, in certain passages, what we need to do is that we need to rather look at the message in the broader context of the chapter because the fact of the matter is this was a, this was written to Hebrews. This was given as a sermon to Hebrew people. And a lot of us aren't Hebrew, right? <laughs> we, we're, we're, we, are not, we are not Hebrew citizens, okay? We are, we are not from the Hebrew order. So there's a lot of cultural context in here um, that I, I just want to preach to you guys the entire story of the Bible as, uh, as it pertains to covenant relationship. Um, so that's what we're going to do. I'm gonna, we're going to read the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 9, but then uh, we're going to deviate, and I'm going to go through Genesis, I'm going to go through Exodus, we're going to go through different portions of Scripture, and I'm going to give you guys a broader context. Basically, what I'm going to try and do in 45 minutes, guys, is tell you the whole story of the Bible, okay? So, strap in, right? Okay. Um, Hebrews chapter 9. Um, I will be reading for for fluidity's sake and for language sake. Um, I'm going to be reading through the ESV. Um, Try and read along if you can. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which where the, uh, were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. You guys can already, like, for those of you that are new to church, you can already tell, no idea what this is saying, right? Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff 
budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So even the pastor saying, I wish I could tell you everything, but we don't have time, right? He has 45 minutes just like me, right? But what he's describing right now is the presence of God. He's talking about the tabernacle, the tent and the dwelling place of God when it was in the wilderness. And later on, it would be the temple, in the center of Jerusalem, right? He's talking about how it was decorated, what it looked like. And then he says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. Who do we learn as our great high priest? What have we learned in Hebrews? Who's our great high priest, guys? Jesus. Right on, A+. plus. A year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So we talked about how the high priest would offer sacrifices in the temple on behalf of the people to show the severity of their sin. When they see their, when they see the blood running and flowing through the temple of Jerusalem, it is a picture. It is a picture of that their sin represents death, right? But this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He's saying that these, these rituals, they can't properly purify your heart. They can't properly perfect you, right? That's up for the reformation of what Christ brings. But when Christ appeared, verse 11, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, the securing and eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. In summary, before I go on, that is that, is that the sacrifices offered were but a picture of atonement. It was but a temporary atonement, bringing in a lamb. And we talked about this earlier in Hebrews, bringing a lamb, bringing a goat, bringing a calf to be sacrificed was only a picture of the broader sacrifice, of the greater sacrifice Jesus would make on the cross. That was the purpose of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And so he's saying, if these sacrifices somehow purified your flesh, meaning if that was a representation and, and, and God was pleased with that, how much more pleased would God be with Christ's sacrifice on the cross on your behalf, right? Verse 15, more than halfway done. Hang in there. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect 
only at death, since it is not in force a long, as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That's important. Covenant always requires blood. And we'll learn about what covenant is. For where every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. This is getting weird, huh? This is getting weird. Yeah, you guys, I know you guys are looking at me like, never coming back. Okay, hang in there. It's awesome. It's awesome. You just got to get past all the goriness. Saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. So he's saying, essentially, that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient once. He died once for sins. That it's not required for Christ to continually die. Like the priest had to continually make sacrifices in the temple, right? That Christ made one ultimate perfect sacrifice, right? And we're going to learn why. Where was I? Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Gnarly, right? We're going to pray. Bow your heads with me. Lord, uh, we pray that uh, your word would be handled um, with care tonight. Lord, there, there's a lot of stuff in here that's, that's confusing and it's hard to navigate because we didn't come from this culture. Lord. But help us to understand the greater story here at work. Cause us to understand your plan. Allow us to enter and peer into your will, into your story. And as we gaze upon you, Jesus, in in, in the glory of who you are, Lord, may we find our own identities. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, in a clear and concise way, God, that that me as an imperfect vessel, Lord, would, um, would purely rely upon your word. And God, that tonight we would leave here um, refreshed, Lord, and, and more knowledgeable of your character and who you are. That's what we pray tonight. Lord. We rely on you and we love you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So guys, I'm going to kind of, I'm gonna, I, I, I want to tell you the whole story, right? I, I was talking to my wife too, you know, I was getting a little frustrated because it's like, I, 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 don't got, I don't got a lot of time. And I want to tell you the whole story of the Bible because when we look at all these blood sacrifices and we look at all of what's the tent and why all the decorations, why were there angels and like, like all of this, when we, when we look at it, it's, it's just easy to kind of gloss over it and to just say, this is just weird. I'm going to pretend this chapter doesn't exist, right? 
And then we're going to get to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the hall of faith, right? And the hall of faith, those of you guys that don't know, it's just talking about how awesome people and be like them, right? You know, and and that's the easy part of the Bible, isn't it? The David and Goliath stories, the Moses stories, right? The stories that we can be like, oh, I can identify with that guy's weakness or I can try and be like that guy, right? We, we like those stories. We can, we can enter into that. But with passages like this, it's a little hard, right? It's a little hard to enter into, okay, there was tents and there was blood and, you know, like the, what's happening, right? And, and I encourage you guys, as we learned a few weeks ago, I encourage you heavily to dive deep into this. And if you don't know how to really dive deep into scripture, come and talk to me. I will teach you how. Because there's so much beauty in the intricacies here. There's so much truth to be gleaned if we can just understand the broader context of what this, what this pastor is talking about. But for the sake of you guys being edified, we're, we're going to talk about the broader story of the gospel. And I'm going to kind of break that into five sections. But the broader story of the gospel, what's God doing? You know, what's God doing? Because I think as Christians, we tend to overlook the Old Testament a lot. But when we look at the New Testament, we realize that a lot of it is either the fulfillment of the Old Testament, or it it references the Old Testament, or it is a addition to the Old Testament, right? You guys know that Revelation, that whole book about the future, did you know that like 70% of it is actually just talking about stuff that's already happened in the Old Testament, right? So, so it, it's like, it's really important for us to know the broader story of the gospel. And it starts with God. It starts with creation, right? So in Genesis chapter one, right? That's where it starts, right? That's where the story starts. But God didn't really start with Genesis chapter one, Right? God is, he just always has been. He is the author and creator of time, space, and matter. So the whole like question that we would ask as kids, or that maybe some of you ask this, I'm going to answer it for you now. Remember when you were a kid and you're like, well, you know, if God created everything, who created God? Who's God's mommy and daddy, right? You know, like that, that whole, that whole question that a lot of people pose is actually, it, it, it's, it's like me trying to ask, um, what shape is yellow? Right? Like, who, what? That's not, that question, that's not a question, right? Right? So it's like me asking where God came from and who is God's originator is like me asking what square smells like. Right? It's, it's, it logically, that's, that's not a right question to ask because God is existence. There was no originator of God because it's just God. He's the originator. He's the creator of time, space, and matter. He exists outside of it, right? He exists outside of time, space, and matter. So to ask where God came from is absurd, right? It's not a right question, right? And he would describe himself as that when Moses said, hey, what's your name, right? So I know like you're the God of this, you're the God of that. Like, and Moses just said, "Who?" when, when people ask what your name is, What's your name, right? And God just says, I am. That's it. I am. That's what God says. He says, I am who I am. Meaning, I am just, I am God, I exist, right? You can call me, you can call me king. You can call me Lord. But in reality, I am. I am. 
I am existence. I am time. I am space. I, I, exi- I have created. I am the originator of all. And so Genesis chapter 1 is where our story begins, not necessarily where God's story begins, right? It's where our relationship with God begins. And we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is super important. This is incredibly important. Forget about all the silly arguments of how old the earth is and whether it's created in seven seven literal days or not. It doesn't matter. What matters is that God created the heavens and the earth, okay? So you can come up to me and you'd be like, well, I think this, this, this is the theory. If you got that God created the heavens and the earth, you got it. You got enough for now, right? God created the heaven and the earth. Whatever the timeline was, at one point in that, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he made us. He made us. And it's egotistical for us to say, oh, man is the center of the universe, right? But we are incredibly important. We are God's image stamped into his creation, right? And he says this in verse 26. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and all over the creeping things that creep on the earth, right? Like God gave us dominion over snakes and spiders and mice, right? Gave you dominion over that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. it means just, just take it all. It's yours. I made this for you. It's yours. And notice how he said, let us make man in our image. Let us do this. And that is the plurality of God. That is the first, that is Elohim. And we've studied this before. Elohim, it's, it means gods, but it's unified plurality. It's, it's how we get our concept of the Trinity, how God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You want to know the intricacies of how it works? Wait till you get to heaven and ask God about it, right? But God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing in three characters, but as one person, it's amazingly confusing. God creates men and women in his image. Now, it's not that we physically look like God, maybe. But it's that he has stamped his character on us. He's put his character into us. His ability to think, his ability to form language, make music, create beautiful things and experience the depth of emotion. You know, that's all from God. All of it. What what we believe makes us human, our creativity, our ingenuity, our ability to form and and create things, our ability to uh, form analysis. And language, don't even get me started on language. Did you know linguists have, have been baffled at the fact that language is like matter. It can't be created nor destroyed. It's crazy. There's no 
It's not like they just started with, oh, ooh, ah, and just formed language, right? Linguists have, have come to this conclusion that language just has always been as God was. And it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was God, right? That's crazy. That, that's a whole other sermon, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that God has stamped his character onto you. Love, fear, this, this, this ability to experience joy. Everything that makes us human is also what harkens us back to worshiping the character of God. All these beautiful things that we, this adoration, this love for one another and the community that we seek, that's, that's part of the character of God because he himself exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has stamped his character onto us. And he says, he says, guys, listen, everything is here is yours. That was the first command to, that God gave. The first command that God gave was take dominion over it, subdue it, be fruitful and multiply. God's, contrary to what people may think, God's first command was, hey, don't eat that fruit, right? Like God just created people and said, hey, don't touch that, right? Like, what? The first thing that God said was, all of this is yours. Enjoy it. Because God is most glorified when you enjoy what he has created with him. God is glorified when you enjoy the things that he has created with, with a knowledge and a recognition that he is the giver and the originator of it. Things in this world are better enjoyed when we recognize them as a gift from God. That way, we don't have to have unhealthy ownership over it, right? We don't have to have unhealthy ownership over it. If, it's, if everything's a gift, it means that if it somehow goes, as gifts often do, they come and go. Objects, relationships, they, they come and go. And if we see these things as gifts and not as things to hinge our identities upon when that relationship leaves or if that person moves or if, uh, if this object breaks, whatever it may be, we can just say, hey, it was a gift anyway. Praise be to God, he's going to give me something else. I'm enjoying him and not the things, right? And that's, this is what we've been created to do. We've been created to enjoy God and the creation that surrounds us. Doesn't that sound cool? Don't you guys wish that's what we did, right? Don't you guys wish that you could just enjoy your iPhone without it being your taskmaster, right? Don't you guys just wish you could just be and enjoy things without it stressing you out, right? Don't you guys wish you can learn things without the pressure of it being your identity to get good grades, right? Don't you guys wish you could go to work because it's something you enjoy doing and that you feel like you're contributing to the greater society without you having to fear anything? This is the economy God created in enjoying his creation alongside him. But we get to chapter two. Now, as I've said before, God has created us to exist in a loving, abiding relationship with him, yeah? 
He, he created us because, because, listen, we can think like him. He has made us in his image. It means we can think, we can experience emotion, and we can exist in relationship. God can't have intimate, abiding relationship with a zebra. Okay? Because he hasn't put a spirit of consciousness in that zebra. He hasn't... Uh, he hasn't put a, he hasn't put a symbol of, uh, that, that zebra can't express self-sacrificial love, right? And it, it cannot speak to you, but he has stamped human beings with the ability to exist in relationship and communion with God. But as I said before, the difference between a date and a kidnapping is free will, Right? Right? When me and my wife went on our first date, the difference between her telling her friends, oh, I had a great time, and her telling her friends, help me, save me, come get me, call someone, was the fact that it was a mutually agreed upon thing, right? That's what free will is. And so in order for a loving and abiding relationship to exist between God and man, there must be a variable called free will involved. It's the difference between a loving relationship and a kidnapping. And so God put an agent of free, he put a variable in place. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, listen, listen, God provide, here, here's a path to life and death. And the only way for us to truly love him is to choose to do so, right? The only way for me to love my wife, the only way for me to love my family is to choose to do so. Yes? Yes? If we are truly made in God's image, it means that we have the will and we are able to make decisions as God is able to make decisions. We are able to choose things. And God loves that about us and he made us that way. The problem is we chose unwisely, right? Now, the sin of Adam and Eve was not eating an apple, right? Probably wasn't even an apple. It was probably some weird... Middle Eastern food, right? Figs, you know, something like, I don't know. Adam and Eve were enticed, not by a fruit, but the enemy, the agent of free will, said, listen, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. Adam and Eve were like, be like God, huh? God's pretty cool. I could be like God. I could be my own God. I'm going to eat this fruit. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be God. And that was the original sin. And it's the sin that we all commit to. Come on. We all think we could be the God of our own lives, right? We all think we're the author of our own lives. We all think that we are in control of everything. And, and, and that's the original sin is I can be like God. When they, what they had done was separate themselves from God. Essentially said, this loving relationship, I'm going to decide to decline it. And I'm going to see if I can do my own thing here. And when they had done this, it says in Genesis chapter, chapters 2 and 3, when they had done this, they took fig leaves. You guys know this story? All of a sudden they ate the fruit and they looked at each other. They're like, hey, you're naked. <laughs> right? Oh, you're naked. That's weird. Don't look at me. Right? Like, I'm naked. You know that sense of shame 
you know those dreams that you have, right? Where you're in the middle of class and you're naked, right? You're like, oh, dang, you know? For me, I have vivid dreams of me preaching naked, right? Like, I, I have, I vivid, like, I don't know if Mark has that, but I have, like, these dreams of, like, me hiding behind the pulpit and just, like, don't look at what's happening. And all of you guys are talking and making fun of me. And, oh, man. Um, that's not true. You guys just, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm hearkening back to my dreams. That's very insecure. I'm very insecure. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. That's the thing. All of a sudden, with sin, and when they had that separation from God, all of a sudden, there was this feeling of shame and insecurity. There was this shame and insecurity that now exists that didn't exist before. And so what happened was that they got these fig leaves. And back then, right, it was, it was kind of a prehistoric type atmosphere. The fig leaves were huge, right? And so they just kind of just wrapped them around themselves, just trying to cover themselves up because they were ashamed. And then God comes knowing fully well what they have done. But he says this because it's a greater image and it's a greater representation of what just happened. God says to Adam, Adam, where are you? And this is a great, in this question, God, it's not like God was searching for them, right? But what God is expressing in this question when he says, where are you? He's expressing a separation that has now occurred. It's like how a couple or a friend, you, you know how they could, you know how your friend or your spouse or your, your loved one, you know how they could be there, but they're not there, you know? That's how it was. Where are you? Where are you? And Adam says, I, I heard you coming and I was, I was afraid because I was naked. And he says, who told you that you were naked? Who gave you this shame? So stuff occurs. God curses them and he curses the ground. He says, work's going to be hard now. Before it was going to be this beautiful taking care of my creation. I, I, I created you to... I created you to take ownership over my creation, but now it's, it's going to own you. Why'd you do that? Don't you wish that you could own things and that they wouldn't own you? I do. I wish that I could just own my car. But sometimes I feel like it owns me, right? I wish that I could just own my computer. But oftentimes I feel like it owns me. Does that make sense? It's like, now it's going to own you. Cursed is the ground, and now work's going to be hard. And the question I've always had was this. Why did God kick them out? Because what happens is God kicks them out of the garden, right? God kicks them out of the garden of Eden. And I promise this is going somewhere. God kicks them out of the garden of Eden. And he says, now you have to leave. You, you, you can't exist here anymore. And my question is, God, you're God. Why can't you just forgive them, right? Why can't you just say, hey, it's cool, right? Why can't you just forgive them? Why can't you just say, hey, it's all right? The answer is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. It says something very specific. If you're already in the realm of Genesis, just turn to there, but I'll, I'll read it to you. I want you to listen very closely. Genesis chapter 20, uh, chapter thir- uh, 3, verses 20 through 23. It says this. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Pay attention to that. 
And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Two things here. One, these people try to put on fig leaves, right? Adam and Eve try to cover themselves because they were ashamed. But instead, God had to kill an animal. It's the first animal ever killed. God killed an animal. He shed blood. It's the first thing that ever died. First thing that ever died was this. This poor animal that did nothing was now killed to create a covering for the shame of man. To foreshadow the later on sacrifice of Jesus that would later on be a covering for our sin and our shame. That's what God was doing. Even now, he is beginning, he is beginning to tell the story of his covenant redemption. Even now, in Genesis chapter 3, he is already beginning to say, I am going to fix this. But I'm going to fix it my way. Because my thing is, God, why don't you just do it all now? Why don't you just pay for it all now, right? Why, why don't you just let them? Because there was two trees in the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of the garden of good and evil. And then apparently there was this tree uh, of the tree of life that offered eternal life. Right? It might be a metaphor. A lot of Genesis is poetic. But, it, but essentially, God's saying, we got to boot him. We got to boot Adam and Eve so that they don't inherit eternal life. We don't want them to live forever. I'm like, God, why wouldn't you want them to live forever? And it's because of this. God didn't want them to live forever as sinners. If he had just said, do you know what? You can still live forever it would have been in the context of this separation that occurred as sinners. Guys, I don't want to live forever as a sinner. Do you guys understand that? I think I've said this before. That's why there has to be this covering. That's why narrow is the gate. Because people are like, it's so closed-minded. Why do you have to go through Jesus to get to heaven? Why does God's perfection need to be in play here? Where it's like, well, do you know what? If God just, do you know what? Everyone's just going to give you eternal life when you die. We're just going to live forever in heaven. What happens is it just becomes forever in imperfection. Forever in sin. Guys, I deal with so much sin in my life and shame in my life. I cannot do this forever. It'd be torment, right? Isn't that what hell is? Just me living forever as a sinner? Oh man, that's, that's torture, at least for me. Maybe you could live with yourself forever, but I couldn't do that. I would just accumulate sin over that time and just become worse and worse. You know, Paul in the beginning of his ministry, he said, I'm a sinner. And at the end of his ministry, he said, I'm the chief of sinners, right? Paul, the apostle himself is like, I got worse over time. So he sacrificed an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve, which was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter nine, what we just read says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This was just the beginning of God starting a cosmic rescue mission to redeem his people. And what would go on is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years 
of God working through a select group of people to redeem the world. That's where we get to chapter 3 of this whole thing, which is the covenant of Abraham. I want you to listen, because I'm telling you the whole story of the Bible right now. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. But if you want to understand the way God operates and in his love, you've got to pay attention to this. And you have to read the story of Abraham. At least start with the story of Abraham and finish all the way till Joseph. It'll give you a lot of context. God followed the generations following Adam and Eve. Uh, some people built kingdoms so wicked that God had to destroy them. Right? That's what we see in the story of Noah. Right? Once again, the intricacies of what you believe regarding that story. Take away this, that God decided that he was not going to tolerate um, a people group that was built off of sexual uh, assault. That, that, was, that was the cornerstone of the sins that God listed in uh, the time of Noah, that sexual assault and rape and all of this, this it was rampant. And God he said, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tolerate that. So there were some kingdoms that were built that God had to destroy because he said, there's no way I'm going to allow this to exist. Right? There are some that he allowed, and he allowed generations to pass. And God eventually picks a man named Abram from Ur. <laughs> just a simple guy, right? He's just, he's just doing his thing. He's, no, he's a nobody. He's not important. Right? I think one of, one of the greatest points here is that Abram was not this royalty. You know, he was he's just a man. He had some flocks. He had some employees. He had a wife. He lived with his cousin, right? Like, had a good relationship with his dad. And all of a sudden, God says, listen, Abram, you and me, I'm going to choose you. And, and, and here's what's interesting, guys, that this is how God operates. He chooses a select group of people, and then he builds on that, right? He chooses nobodies, and then he expands their ministries into something far beyond what they could ever imagine, right? And so God picks a man named Aram, and he tells Aram to go outside of his tent one day. He says, one, one night, um, he says, go, go outside your tent, go outside. And Aram's just looking up into the stars, right? He's just talking with God. And he's kind of new to this whole God talking to him kind of thing, right? Some of you guys are like that. You're like, I don't know, I've been a Christian for a little bit. I don't know if God's talking to me or I'm just, you know, right? And he looks towards heaven. He looks at the stars. And God says this, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is Genesis chapter 15. He says, Abram, I want you to look outside. And back then, this is before light pollution, y'all, right? <laughs> this is, you know, LA, we go up, we look at one star. Oh, is that a star, right? Like, no way, right? What, is that a plane? I, I swear to you, um, <laughs> we were backpacking and this was before, you know, uh, this, this was before, um, you know, the sun was setting and stuff. And we saw this like little flicker and we're like, is that a, is that a star? Is that a plane? Right? Like we had no idea, but I want you guys to think like of like just the, like you could see the Milky Way is just 
perfection. You could see every single star. This is before society had ruined it, right? This was just like, man, just stars everywhere. He says, Abram, I want you to look out. Because if he had said this to me, look into the stars if you can number them. I'm like, I see three. Cool. I'll have three kids, right? Um, but to Abram, to Abram, the vastness of the stars. And he says, Abram, your descendants shall be greater than the number of the stars. And if you guys don't know, Abraham was like 75 years old and no kids yet. And he says this, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him as righteousness. God essentially went up to Abraham and he said, Abram, are you in? You ready to do this with me? He said, yes. Yes, I am. Abraham would have no idea that his descendants would later on be Israel. So God made Abram a covenant, and he later on became Abraham. As no father Abraham and many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. Um, Sunday school, guys. Uh, but that's true, because... Abraham would beget Isaac. Isaac would begot Jacob. Jacob would begot Joseph. And Joseph would lead um, his father's family into Egypt. And they would multiply in Egypt. And then they would be enslaved in Egypt. But then they'd be led out of Egypt. And then they'd be led into the promised land. That would be Israel. And out of Israel would become Jesus. Out of Jesus, the 12 apostles. And the 12 apostles would convert. And now we're here in Newbury Park, California. at 8.05 p.m., right? That's a part of Abraham. That's a part of the promise. That God, when he says, Abram, you can't even count how many descendants you will have. He literally meant it, right? Because we are a part of that. We are a part of that. This is a part of the grand story of God's rescue mission. It's to choose a family in which he was going to send his son, Jesus Christ. God made Abraham a covenant and he said, Abraham, just to let you know, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to promise you. And what a covenant means, guys, it's more than a contract. A contract means we both agree to this. And if one of us breaks a certain clause, the covenant is void or you owe me something, right? That is a, that is a contract more or less. Yes? Yes? A covenant is different. A covenant is saying, I am agreeing to never break my promise to you. I'm agreeing to never break my promise to you. And it's supposed to be two ways, right? When I married my wife, we made a covenant. She said, I will never leave you. She said, I will never leave you. Right? That's a covenant. But God operates on a different level because what happened was God said, hey, I want you to kill. Once again, I want you to shed blood because that's how God operated. He said, an innocent thing has to die here because you can't swear on your own guilty blood. So we're going to make a covenant. And what, what would happen back then is that they would split the animal in half. I know this sounds gory, but they split the animal in half and both parties would like link arms or something and they would walk through. But what happened here is that God, knowing that Abram could never keep his promises, caused Abram to go into a deep sleep and God just walked through himself. He said, this promise is on me. This promise is on me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And God faithfully walked with Abraham and his descendants. 
he faithfully followed them. He faithfully took care of him. He faithfully never left his side, even when Abraham went here and went there and lied to this person and did this. And and he followed his son, Isaac. Isaac, I believe, out of all the patriarchs, was the dullest and dumbest, right? Just kind of just wandered like, Dad, get me a wife, like... Abraham's like, I'm like 150, like, you know, like, and, and, and so, and so Isaac, you know, God faithfully followed Isaac and then Jacob, Jacob, who was the most edgy out of all the patriarchs, he lied to get everything, right? Jacob just could not stop deceiving people right? He could not stop, right? But even God, even though Jacob was so imperfect, God followed and he was faithful. And then Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but eventually God was faithful to him and he made him one of the highest authorities in the greatest kingdom on earth, Egypt at the time. And when there's a great famine in the land, what happens in the later uh, part of Genesis towards the end, what happens is all of Joseph's brothers and his wives and all the children and everyone just came to Egypt to seek refuge. And eventually Egypt would enslave the Hebrew people, the descendants. In the midst of slavery and hardship, Israel multiplied in numbers. What we have to know about God's people, guys, is we as we increase in persecution and as America begins to fall into this time period of, all right, it's not as, you know, practical to be a Christian anymore. You know, it's not as well-received to be a Christian nowadays. Okay, I'm noticing a little kickback. I mean, some of you guys, the only persecution you get is like Facebook, right? But, um, you know, it's becoming a little more taboo in, in other countries. You know, you get your head chopped off, but here, you know, I think a little Facebook argument is okay, right? Um, but essentially what happens in the midst of hardship, God's people usually multiply. It's the way God's designed it. It's to be a greater image of enduring sin and hardship. Right? It's more to God's glory. Because it, it, it makes us rely on him more. One day Israel, it was just done. Israel's crying out to the Lord, as we see in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Their cries were heard by God, and, and he sent Moses to set them free. And when Moses says, hey, who are you, right? Moses says, hey, who, who, should, I say, who should I say sent me, right? Who should I say sent me? And God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's basically saying, those people who are enslaved in Egypt, they're mine. I am their God. They are my people and I am going to deliver them. And what I love about God, what I love about God, and this is encouragement for those of you that grew up in the church. What I love about God is that he was the God of Abraham. But when Isaac was born, he was the God of Isaac and Abraham. And then when Jacob was born, he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to understand something that God is not just the God of your forefathers. He's not just the God of your parents. He wants to be just as faithful, if not more to you, if you would allow him. He's basically saying, hey, those people being beaten and enslaved in Egypt, they're mine. 
and I've heard their cries, I'm going to deliver them. And God delivering the people out of Egypt is a part of the story of the redemption. Just as the killing of the calf was a metaphor and a, and a foreshadowing of the covering that Christ would put on us, so was the entering out of the slavery of Egypt a greater metaphor of God delivering us from the slavery of sin. That we are slaves to our vices and that God seeks to deliver us out of that into the promised land, which is not prosperity, but rather his presence. And being unified with him as Adam and Eve were, in the garden. Are you guys kind of seeing how this is one continuous story? Are you guys seeing that a little bit? Because it is. It's one rescue story. And God shall deliver his people out of the bondage once more through Christ. That's the image here. That we become enslaved to sin, the sins of ourselves and the sins of other people, Right? I feel like other people's sins can enslave us just as much as our own sins enslave us. And God seeks to deliver us out of that. And God leads them out of slavery into the wilderness where they seek out the promised land that God has for them. There, guys, in the midst of the wilderness, and this might, you guys are like, oh, some of you I could see, like, I've heard this, right? But it's such a cool story. And God gave them the law in the wilderness. You guys know like the Old Testament, right? Right? A lot of Exodus, right? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? The law, right? All those like weird rules, right? All those weird rules that we see in the Bible, right? But the most famous of those of that law, what, what's the most famous laws? What are they? Ten Commandments. Very good class, right? The Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are the most important and the most, like, the most famous out of all of those. And before God lists the Ten Commandments, this is what he says in Exodus chapter 20. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the uh, land of bondage. So what God's saying before he gives his law, he's saying, listen, I've called you to be free. And this is how we become free. By not murdering each other by not stealing or lying from one another, by staying faithful to your spouse, by worshiping your God. He's saying, I've delivered you out of slavery. I don't want to enslave you again. I want you to be free. And we can only operate in freedom under these parameters. If we mimic the character of God. But how many of you have broken at least one of the Ten Commandments? Come on, y'all. Don't be lying, right? Yeah. <laughs> if there was a 12th commandment, I would break that too, right? One of the most common, we talked about this before, is what? We break the Sabbath, right? All the time, right? All the time. Right, and so, and so we, we, and God gave this, and he said, this is a new covenant, right? This is a covenant. Remember, covenant is promise, right? God saying, I promise to be faithful to you. Can you please be faithful to me? And us saying, we promise God, and then tomorrow, breaking that promise, right? That's how covenant, that's how covenant relationship has worked all throughout history, and God gives us this law, and he says, keep this law. I'm never going to leave you. I've delivered you out of Egypt. Keep this law. And once again, 
Moses comes up as a priest and he sacrifices. They sacrifice an animal as a symbol of that covenant, that blood, right? And they, and, and, and guys, the law, in essence, there's, there's civil law, there's ceremonial law, and there's moral law, right? The moral law is to be kept and upheld because it's, it's to display the character of God. There's civil law, meaning this is meant for the society of Egypt to differentiate you from the surrounding um, countries, right, and the surrounding nations. There's ceremonial law, which was meant to point towards the sacrifices of Jesus, right? And they established these things. And it was another covenant. A covenant where God says, I'm not going anywhere. I want to let you know I'll never leave you or forsake you. Please, please stay faithful to me. And all throughout Israel's history, he stays completely faithful to them. He upholds his side of the covenant. For thousands of years, though they run away continuously from him, as Adam and Eve did, he pursues them. As Abraham disobeyed, so Israel disobeyed. But God still pursues him because guess what? God made a promise. And God, unlike us, does not fall short on his promises. And so he developed a nation around this law. And the Ten Commandments were then put in the Ark of the Covenant. It was put at the center of this tent called the tabernacle. And and that would be where the, the presence of God was. And that's where priests would go in and enter it, but they couldn't totally enter in because there was one part where it was the Holy of Holies and that could only be entered in by certain people at a certain period of time because it was meant to symbolize the holiness of God and God's presence dwelt there. But we can't really be unified with God because of that sin and separation so that they would, ha- they would have to go through all these purification processes and washings and cleansings and sacrifices all to kind of just inch their way into the holies of holies and maybe peer into the presence of God for but a moment. But there's always this separation that happened. And the law was meant to, as it declares in Galatians, to almost babysit us. And it was meant to kind of show us the character of God so that when he finally came to rescue us once and for all, we'd be able to say, that's God. That's God. I know the law. I see that guy. Perfect. Enter into our final chapter where thousands of years pass, where hundreds of years pass since the prophets God has given prophet after prophet to remind Israel. And that's what, that's what the prophets are, guys. We see Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? Are the most famous ones. These prophets that we see in the Old Testament, they're like covenant watchdogs. I want you guys to think about that. They're covenant watchdogs. They, they were sent by God to say, hey, hey, God still loves you. Stop it, right? That's, that's, no, that's all the prophets. The, the prophets are essentially saying, listen, these are the promises of God. And hey, we need to do our part to uphold our part of the promise because God is so faithful. And if we want to be unified with him and we want his blessings, let's keep, let, let's keep at this relationship. Just turn away from your idols, turn away from your materialism and let's go to God. That's, that's what the prophets were essentially. They were covenant watchdogs saying, this is the covenant of God. Let's keep it. 
Because he's faithful. Why don't we be faithful, right? And so hundreds of years passed with, with the prophets saying, listen, hey, let's, let's, God's coming. And the prophets are saying, listen, the Messiah is going to come. Let's keep our covenant with him. Let's remain faithful. He's going to rescue us. And hundreds of years pass and Israel starts to rely on religiosity and ceremony to maintain their relationship with God. But what happens is they grow so discouraged in their covenant that they forget about him. And they just go through the motions of repetition and ceremony and onto the scene from a virgin lying in a manger the God of the universe comes and what an amazing story that God would decide to come in humility not on a horse with the sun behind his back and trumpets sounding. He'll do that eventually. What he came to do is say, I am going to associate with the sin of this world. I'm going to grow up in the dirtiness you have created. I'm going to relate to you. I'm going to live with you. And I'm going to live perfectly. I'm going to bring people to myself and I'm going to heal. I'm going to set the captives free because you guys have made yourself in so much bondage towards sin. I'm going to come and I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to bear the load because we see that there's always an order for covenant to exist. Sacrifice must be made. And all of these animal sacrifices and the, the sacrifice of, of, the, uh, of the covering for Adam and Eve and the sacrifice that was made for Abraham to have a covenant with God and the sacrifice that was made for the people of Israel in the wilderness with Moses to have a covenant with God, none of that's sufficient. And what Christ said is that, listen, what you have done when you sin is that you have created death for yourself. Eternal life, guys is worthless if it's full of sin and if it's full of imperfection. Because like I said, I don't want to exist in an eternal life like that. I don't know if you do. But the world would just progressively become more and more imperfect. And so what God has said, he said, listen, I on myself will bear the full weight of your sin. I will kill it. I will die so that you don't have to die. It says that he became sin, sin on the cross. That he took on your sin, and and this sounds weird because it is. It's gloriously and righteously weird. That the God of the universe would say, I want you so bad to be in my family that I will personally sacrifice and pay the penalty that you would have. And like he did with Abraham, and like he did with Israel, and like he did with Adam and Eve, he makes this way for a covenant and a relationship to exist. He dies for us. He makes this covenant and he says, hey, I'm never going to leave you, but are you in? Are you in? 
And that's where we see in Hebrews chapter 9 where he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's saying, God now doesn't exist in a tent or in a temple or in a tabernacle or in a garden. That what was true of the temple, as it declares in Corinthians, as what was true of the temple is now true of you. He's saying that you can be my dwelling place. I could exist with you step by step. I could do these things with you. I can live life with you. But I will never forsake that free will aspect that makes this a loving and abiding and beautiful relationship. And so as he declared to Israel, as he declared to Abraham, as he declared Adam and Eve, he asks us the same question, which is, will you do this with me? And that's when he said to his disciples, as we go into communion and as we enter into worship, I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Towards the end, when Jesus was about to die, he came to his disciples and he, he broke some bread and he said, this is my body that is broken for you, saying that whatever death that you were supposed to die, I'm going to die that, I'm going to die for you. Don't think about a physical death. I want you to think about a spiritual death. Because our bodies will fade away, right? But Christ died a spiritual death for you. His body was broken and he was killed on your behalf. And then he took this cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, which is really creepy, right? It is. He said, this is my blood. This is the sign of the new covenant. Will you take and drink of it? It's that, it's that, it's that, it's that concept, guys, that we've been learning about what it was with Abraham, what it was with Israel, what it was with Adam and Eve. It was this, listen, listen, I, I promise you through my death that I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I will walk this life with you, I will bless you, I, I, I will bear the load and I will bear your burdens and I will endure everything for you. Will you accept it? It's a covenant. He's saying, I'll never leave you. All we have to do with our free will, guys, which is the only thing we really have to offer God. Have you thought about that? The one thing God has chosen not to own, he's chosen not to own our free will. He owns everything else. And he has chosen to say, your will is yours, but will you give it to me? Saying, will you say yes when I ask you to live this life with me? Right? So he said, this is my covenant. Take and drink of it. And so when we take communion, it's so multi-layered, so much to it. But to me, in its most basic form, is, is this symbol of me saying yes to God. And us collectively as his body, as the disciples were saying yes to God. Continually saying, I, I understand the sacrifice you have made, just as... God was the one who walked through the sacrifice with Abraham. Just as God was the one to part the Red Sea. Just as God was the one to provide for the people in Israel. Just as God was the one to clothe Adam and Eve in the garden. So God has decided to die for us and provide a way for us to be united with him. And so as we worship him tonight, and guys, I have no practical application for you. I have no... I have no, here's how you become a better person tonight. Some sermons are like that. Some sermons aren't. I have no, all right, here's five steps on how to just be a better person, right? 
Tonight, it is simply know the story of God and be honored that you fit into it. That this deep and rich history since the foundation of the world, you get to be a part of by saying yes to God. As Abraham, as God said to Abraham, look at the stars. The effect that you will have in the world by simply saying yes to me will be vastly beyond anything that you could ever imagine. And he offers you through his blood the same exact promise. Saying, will you enter into this life with me? Look into the stars and the effect that you can have on this world for my glory is insurmountable. And so tonight, say yes or no. Don't say maybe. Don't say maybe later. Say yes or no. Because I think that the God of the universe is owed at least a no and not a maybe later. Worship him how you please tonight. Raise your hands, bow on your knees. Sit in his glory and contemplate your relationship with him. But don't leave without at least attempting to speak to him and be open with him. And say, Lord, I, I, I don't know where I fit in in this story of yours. Help me. At least owe, you at least owe him that. And so uh, we're going to pray. Take communion if you desire. That's not for everyone. If you desire, take communion tonight while you worship. And let's give God our attention and our worship. Amen? Lord, um, we recognize the uh, impact you have on our lives and the greatest, in this great story that surrounds you. Father, I, I, I pray that uh, we, would, uh, we would enter into this story with you by saying yes to you, by accepting what you have done on the cross for us, by saying thank you for your sacrifice and for being with you, Lord. Help our hearts, God. Even my heart now is so stirred and so confused as to where I fit, Lord. Help us in this. Thank you for dying. Thank you for rescuing us, Lord. Thank you for entering into history to create this beautiful story of redemption. Invite us and uh, help us to accept your invitation into that story, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In your holy and precious name, we lift our hands and declare our dependence on you. Amen.